0: Our scripture lesson tonight comes from the book of Judges, chapter 8. Judges, chapter 8. Hear now the word of our God. Then the men of Ephraim said to him, to, to Gideon, "'What is this that you have done to us, not to call us, when you went to fight against Midian?' And they accused him fiercely. And he said to them, "'What have I done now in comparison with you?' Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Abiezer? God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb, and Zayab. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger against him subsided when he said this. And Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over, he and the 300 men who were with him, exhausted yet pursuing. So he said to the men of Succoth. Please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted, and I am pursuing after Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. And the officials of Succoth said, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand that we should give bread to your army? So Gideon said, Well then, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. And from there he went up to Penuel and spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Sokoth had answered. And he said to the men of Penuel, When I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. Now Ziba and Zalmunna were in Karkor with their army, about 15,000 men, all who were left of all the army of the people of the east, for there had fallen a 120,000 men who drew the sword. And Gideon went up by the way of the tent dwellers east of Nobah and Yogbehah, and attacked the army, for the army felt secure. And Zeba and Zalmunna fled, and he pursued them and captured the two kings of Midian, Zeba and Zalmunna, and he threw all the army into panic. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Heres, and he captured a young man of Succoth and questioned him. And he wrote down for him the officials and elders of Succoth, seventy-seven men. And he came to the men of Succoth and said, Behold, Ziba and Zalmunna, about whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Ziba and Zalmunna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your men who are exhausted? And he took the elders of the city, and he took thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them taught the men of sakoth the lesson. And he broke down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. Then he said to Ziba and Zalmunna, Where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? They answered, As you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. And he said, They were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. So he said to Jether, his firstborn, Rise and kill them. But the young man did not draw his sword, for he was afraid because he was still a young man. Then Zeba and Zalmunna said, Rise yourself and fall upon us, for as the man is, so is his strength. And Gideon arose and killed Zeba and Zalmunna, and he took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And Gideon said to them, let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil. For they had golden earrings, because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, We will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw in it the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, and besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Ophrah, and all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more. And the land had rest forty years in the days of Gideon. Jerubbaal, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had seventy sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash his father at Ophrah of the Abizrites. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Barit their God. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jeroboam, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. This is the word of the Lord. We've seen that the first part of Gideon's life was characterized by fear in chapters 6 and 7. Yep. Starting back in chapter 6, he, w- he was hiding in a wine press in order to thresh his grain. In our text tonight, we find out why he was hiding in a wine press. His brothers were all dead. He's the last son of his mother. He's hiding in a wine press because. He and his family are afraid for their last son. You can understand why he was afraid. But we saw his fear master him in chapter 6. He's asking, How can I save Israel? He's, he, he asks for a sign, and, and, and you know, those two questions reveal his fear, but God's answers should have been sufficient. He's terrified when he's, that he sees the angel of the Lord, he he goes by night to, to do the work that God called him to do, but it only really goes bad when he starts using the fleece as his way of putting the Lord to the test, and he even uses that word to say, "This is what I'm doing. I'm putting the Lord to the test." And then when God says to him, "If you're still afraid," and yet... Gideon is held up in Hebrews 11 as a hero of faith. Why is he a hero of faith? Because he obeyed God perfectly? (laughs) Not even close. No, he's a hero of faith because when the time came, in spite of his weakness, in spite of his fearfulness, in spite of his frailty, in spite of his failings all over the place, when the time came, He did what God told him to do. And as we see in our text tonight, once Gideon starts down the path of faith, he continues boldly and fearlessly, at least for a while. Now, there's a way in which the story of Gideon is both incredibly comforting and a little bit, should make us a little bit nervous. Because it should should be comforting in that we do have those moments of bold and fearless faith. We're like, oh, I, I can see Gideon. He, he's, he's, a, he's a hero that I can relate to because I have those moments when I trust God and I do the thing he calls me to. But I also have the moments when I fall flat on my face. But of course, that's the part of the story that has less comfort to it because the story of Gideon ends... With Israel back in rebellion again. This is why the story of Gideon. Only brings true comfort. When you see. As Hebrews 11 tells us. That Gideon is only made perfect. With us. Because it's only with us. That because Jesus has come. And Jesus is the one who brings about. What Gideon pointed to. Last time we heard how the Lord gently rebuked Gideon's fearfulness. Gideon had put the Lord to the test. That's, that's like the big thing that God says, don't do this. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. And Gideon knows what he's doing. He even said, let not your anger burn against me. Please let me test just once more. He knows he shouldn't be doing this. And he does it anyway. But God had mercy on Gideon. After all, if God dealt with Gideon as Gideon deserved, who would be left to deliver Israel? If God dealt with you and with me as we deserved, who would be left to bring the gospel to your friends, your neighbors, those around you? When you are tempted to think that there's someone else more qualified than you, remember Gideon, it is entirely possible that there is no one more qualified than you. Not because you're so great. When you look for Gideon's qualifications, they don't... It's not that Gideon's so great. It's that God has called him and put him there and then equipped him with his spirit in order to do the thing that God has called him to do. It's not your might, it's not your strength, it's not your wisdom, it's not all the gifts that you have. No, it's simply your faith that you believe that God will do what he has promised. And so we are called to believe him and walk forward in his ways. But as I said, we saw last time, the Lord has gently rebuked Gideon, uh, gently, by Pruning his army of 32,000 down and sending away the fearful and the trembling, which was two thirds of the army. But even 10,000 were too many. And since Gideon had tested the Lord twice, so also the Lord refined Gideon a second time. And so now Gideon has 300 men left. And God's like, ah, that's more like it. Hopeless. You got no chance. Unless I go with you. And so God sent Gideon. And his 300 men. Against as we learn. 135,000 Midianites. 300 against 135,000. <laughs> Hopeless. Incredible odds. What are we waiting for? What's more. they holding trumpets in one hand, torches in the other. In other words, nobody's got room for a sword. You're going to stand there with a a torch in one hand, a trumpet in the other hand. You're going to blow your trumpet. You're going to shine your torch. And you're going to shout, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Never mind, I don't have one. And as these 300 heralds, because they're not warriors at this point. They're just heralds. 300 heralds proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom And the Midianites suddenly turn against each other and the Lord sets every man's sword against his his comrade and against the army. And so we we left last time with Gideon summoning all the men of Israel, Naphtali, Asher, Manasseh, then the hill country of Ephraim, basically the, the northern tribes on the west side of the Jordan, and it's noted, especially at the beginning of our text, that Ephraim is singled out for their success in tracking down Oreb and Zeab, the two princes of Midian. And they, they bring their, their, their heads to Gideon, and this is where the trouble starts, because the men of Ephraim say to him, What is this that you have done? Not to call us when you went to fight against Midian? And they accused him fiercely. Now, in one sense, the accusation is fair, Back in chapter six, verse thirty-five, Gideon sent messengers to Manasseh, Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali. In other words, the northernmost tribes. But he doesn't send anybody further south to Ephraim. So they're they're objecting that they weren't given a chance to participate. But Gideon doesn't respond with indignation. He responds graciously. Sort of, he could have said, uh, "Guys." You are so far south, I didn't have time to call you. And hey, besides, I didn't call Judah. I didn't call anybody further south than you. I just called the ones who were right around us. He could have said that. But no. A soft anger, uh, answer turns away wrath. And Gideon replies by saying, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Abiezer? I mean, my, my family is great. I, sort of my whole harvest is nothing compared to the gleanings of you. You are the wealthy ones. You are the powerful ones. And besides, in this battle, you are the ones who took captive Oreb and Zaeb. So what do I, what have I done in comparison with you? So he placates Ephraim and humbles himself before them. A soft answer turns away wrath. Gideon understands that now is not the time for bickering and quarreling among his own people. Ephraim has fought well, but the Midianite threat is not over. There is still more work to be done, and so Gideon wisely calms the tempers of Ephraim. Now, that's not always the way to lead. In fact, Gideon will show a different model shortly. But here, Gideon demonstrates wisdom in calming the spirits of Ephraim, restoring harmony to the army and saying, okay, guys, we need to work together. This is not a time for infighting. And so having done that, he resumes his pursuit of the kings of Midian. Now, we're told in verse 4 that Gideon then came to the Jordan and crossed over, he and the 300 men who were with him. And you might be wondering, okay, Ephraim just objected to not being allowed to be part of the original force. Why doesn't Ephraim come with Gideon now? For that matter, where's the rest of... There's another 32,000 who had been willing to come out in the first place. Where are they? To some extent, you could say, maybe Israel's not really following their spirit-clothed warrior. But... When you watch what Gideon's doing, he's doing something that is not going to. A large army will not be able to do as much as what he can do with three hundred men. He's got a plan. He's got. There's some. He he, but he's. But as but his plan is not. It's not well known. People don't understand what he's doing because when when he comes to Succoth, he says. Give loaves of bread. You know, and, and the men of Succoth refused to feed them. And you could understand why. I mean, now, if Gideon had the 32,000 with him, it might be harder to feed them. There'd be more mouths to feed. But at least you'd have a, the confidence that his army would win. I mean, verse 10, after all, tells us the Midianites still had 15,000 men. Gideon's got 300. So Succoth and Penuel both are asking Are the hands of Ziba and Zamuna already in your hand? If we help you and you fail, they're going to come after us. Now, some people think that Gideon is overreacting in his response. He says, when the Lord has given Ziba and Zamuna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. And to Penuel, he says, when I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. There are some commentators who think that that Gideon's going overboard in his sort of quest for vengeance. But you have to understand what's happening here. The men of Succoth and Penuel are essentially saying, we want you to die. We would rather side with the enemies of Israel because we don't trust God to give Midian into your hand. You are going to fail. And in fact, we would rather that you fail than that we would help you possibly succeed because we just don't think God's going to be with you. Now, it's in fairness to Succoth and Penuel, you can understand where they're coming from. They may, have no, they may not know anything about what God has done for Gideon on the other side of the Jordan. After all, if Gideon is sort of the first across the Jordan besides the Midianites, all they've seen is Midianites streaming across the land, running away so that, that should give them some idea that something's happening that's good for Israel. But all they know is this, these raiding forces, these marauding forces that keep coming through, they've run away, but they'll be back. They've always been back before. But then the fellow shows up at your gate with only 300 warriors claiming to be the one who's done this and asks you for bread. I hope I would have done better. But fear is a powerful disincentive. How often has fear slowed you down and caused you to refrain from doing what's right? I mean, it happened to me yesterday. <laughs> I saw a situation that, ah, uh, I should do something, but that's gonna be. It might be costly. It might get me. It might take a lot of time, and it'd be so much easier. I'll just. I just won't do anything about it. Yeah. Fear is a powerful disincentive. Honestly, most of us would probably be like Sarkoth and Penuel. But Gideon and his exhausted band continue their pursuit for over a hundred miles. Karkor is in the far east. This is well outside the territory of Israel, deep into the land of the Ammonites. The Midianites are home. This is back to their, their home base, their home territory. They are far from danger. There is no way that an Israelite army would ever try to go this far. Their supply lines are cut off. They've got no chance of success. So there's, they'd never set, why would you set a guard? There's no, nobody, there's no danger. There's nobody coming after us. We're safe. And it's true. No Israelite army would dare come this far. The Ephraimites didn't sign up for this. <laughs> The 32,000 didn't sign up for this. Only Gideon, clothed by the Spirit of God with his tiny band of 300 men, is willing to penetrate this deep into enemy territory where they once again surprise the Midianite army for the second time in a week. They capture the two kings of Midian, Ziba and Zalmunna, and they throw the whole army into panic. I mean, it's one of those things. It'd be so much fun to learn the details I mean, there's, it's like, when, when I meet Gideon, I'm going, hey, Gideon, how did you do that? But, sure, I'm sure it's a fascinating story. But our text simply shows us that it was the Lord who gave Ziba and Zalmunna into Gideon's hands. After Gideon had said, when the Lord has given them into my hand. And so capturing the kings the, and the army scattering, and so now he's got the kings and he marches them back, to Succoth and Penuel to teach them a lesson. And he shows them, the kings, whom they had said, are there, are there hands in your hand? And he's like, uh, here they are. And he learns the names of the elders of Succoth and teaches them a lesson by whipping them with thorns of the wilderness and briars. And he breaks down the tower of Penuel and, and kills the men of the city. Doesn't say how many, but at least some of them. The, the point here is that these cities are judged according to their own judgments. They had refused to feed the hungry. They had effectively said, we would rather see you dead than help you. Now, Gideon had dealt gently with the hurt feelings of Ephraim. But Succoth and Penuel, these aren't hurt feelings. This was effectively attempted Murder. Succoth and Penuel had sided with the enemies of God's people. They had refused to follow the Lord's spirit-clothed warrior. And so Gideon teaches them a lesson. Our Lord Jesus actually reflects on this lesson. Because Jesus in Matthew's gospel says, Inasmuch as you have done it to the least of these, my brethren, you have done it to me. When Jesus calls us to feed his people... We need to feed his people. When Jesus, the great Gideon, says, Hey, I got 300 men, feed them. If we see one of the least of these hungry, naked, alone, we must act to feed, clothe, and comfort them. And remember what Jesus says to those who do not feed, clothe, and care for those in need. He doesn't just say a few strokes with, a, with, with wilderness thorns and briars. He says, depart from me, you cursed, into the fire prepared for the devil and his angels. What Gideon does to Succoth and Penuel is a faint picture of what Jesus will do to those who refuse to care for the poor and the helpless. Because when we do not care for the poor and the helpless, we are joining the enemies of God and can expect their fate. When, when I've talked with people about the issue of abortion, most, most, of, most people who oppose abortion in the Christian church say, we're doing this because Jesus tells us to care for the weak, the helpless, the oppressed. Who is more oppressed? Who is more helpless than the unborn child who can't speak for themselves? But we need to be careful Because if we start to think that ending abortion is the goal, we need need to remember that the goal is what Jesus told us about feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, visiting the prisoners. That's the goal. It just so happens that that the unborn are one category of those people and not the only category either. Caring for the helpless is not something that you simply do at the ballot box. And I'm glad so many of you have volunteered at crisis pregnancy centers, homeless shelters, and the like. But if we think about what Jesus is saying about clothing and caring and feeding, then we should be involved in, in helping provide good jobs, looking for ways to help those in need, those who have been beaten down and trampled by others. Because Jesus warns us, don't be like the cities of Succoth and Penuel. Now, also, don't be like Ziba and Zalmunna because as we hear in verses 18 and 19, you know, only now do we learn that Gideon's own family had been killed by the Midianites. Gideon's brothers had been killed at Mount Tabor just north of where they were from. And that's why you know, when he's hiding in the wine press, he's the last son of his mother. And again, we don't know the whole story. Were they leading a rebellion? Were they just out shepherding their flocks and got caught in a raid? All we know is that Ziba and Zalmunna remembered them. Ah, as you are, so were they. You look like them. (laughs) And Gideon swears an oath. As you have done to others, so shall it be done to you. thats It's the same basic principle that God uses in judgment. By the measure you have judged others, you also shall be judged. And so Gideon calls his oldest son and Jether uh, refuses to kill them. He's afraid. He's still a young man. It's a curious episode with the the, the fear of Jether not ready to execute his enemies. The mockery by Ziba and Zalmunna, knowing that they're going to die and egging Gideon on. But then... When Gideon kills them, it says that he takes the crescent ornaments from the necks of their camels. Given what follows, this is an ominous statement. Because after all, Ziba and Zalmunna says that Gideon's brothers resembled sons of kings. Here's foreshadowing of what's coming next. What is, if his brothers are like sons of kings, what should Gideon be? And the men of Israel get the point at once. And they say, rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Now, in one sense, Gideon gives the right answer, and everybody applauds him for it. I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. But his answer is more ambiguous than it sounds at first. He disclaims the right to rule. He asserts the Lord's kingship. But everything he does after that suggests that he is taking full advantage of their offer. He asks for the golden earrings, 1,700 shekels of gold, 40 pounds, not a huge quantity, but it's a whole lot more wealth than anyone else would have had in Israel at the time. And then there are the crescent ornaments, the pendants, the, the purple garments, the Purple garments worn by the kings of Midian. Oh no, I will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. But let me have the wealth and trappings of a king. If you look like a king and you sound like a king and you... uh, And what does he do with it? He makes an ephod of it and puts it in his city in Ophrah. If you recall back in Judges 6, verse 34, the spirit of the Lord had clothed Gideon. Now Gideon has clothed himself in the royal garments of Midian together with an ephod. Uh, The high priest wore an ephod which was used to discern the will of God. It certainly looks like Gideon is trying to set up an alternate site for people to seek the will of God, which is precisely what Israel does. After all, If if you're an Israelite at the time, word starts to spread about Gideon's fleece. Gideon was the one who had put the Lord God to the test and lived. So you want Gideon to be the one who... You you want to go to Gideon and find out what... If God is with Gideon, if God blesses Gideon, then I want to go to Gideon to find out what to do to seek what God's will for me is. Now... The sin of Gideon's ephod continues to this day. I have seen it too many times to count, although I'm happy to say not as often in the last 20 years. But have you ever heard somebody use Gideon's fleece as an example for, oh, I'm putting out my fleece to see what God will tell me... Every time somebody uses Gideon's fleece as a way of, dis, sort of, as a sort as of, I'm going to use this sort of model to figure out what God wants me to do, the sin of Gideon's ephod comes back to bite us. Because Judges tells us don't do what Gideon did. Gideon put the Lord God to the test, and God didn't. Yes, he, you know, the Lord blessed Gideon, but it was not because of Gideon's fleece. Gideon was, in some ways, a faithful leader. But he was also, in some ways, a deeply flawed leader. And you see this in the results of his leadership. On the one hand, Midian was subdued. Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, verse 28. And they raised their heads no more. And the land had rest 40 years in the days of Gideon. 40 years of rest, a generation of peace. Well done, good and faithful servant. What's more, never again does Midian rise up against Israel. This, Gideon's defeat of Midian is the end of Midian's participation in fighting against Israel. There's, there are three references in Isaiah and one reference in Habakkuk to Midian. In Habakkuk 3, it includes the, the trembling of the curtains of the land of Midian, uh, referring back to Gideon's day, as among the great deeds of the Lord that the prophet remembers of the great deeds of long ago. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 4, it's the passage that speaks of the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. The, the, the son, the child who is born, the son is given to the, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. And we're told that, that that day will be like the day of Midian when God broke the rod of the oppressor. There will come a one who will do what Gideon could not, He will be the king that Gideon was not supposed to be. And in the next chapter, Isaiah 10, verse 26, the Lord of hosts will wield against his enemies a whip as when he struck Midian at the rock of Oreb. So the prophets refer back to this as the great triumph of God. But Isaiah also says in Isaiah 60, verse 6, that the young camels of Midian and Ephah shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense. They shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. There will come a day when Midian is restored. There will come a day when God will will bring salvation to Midian. There will come a day when those who were once enemies will be brought near. When God beautifies his beautiful house. But that day is not the day of Gideon. Indeed, the story only goes to the worse in verses 29 and following. Gideon has 70 sons. Don't worry, multiple wives. So it's not one woman bearing all these children. But that is also a problem. Deuteronomy had said that kings were not supposed to have many wives, and Gideon is acting like a king and having many wives. The only way that you can afford many wives and many sons is by being extremely wealthy. And not only does he have many wives, he also has a concubine in Shechem. Shechem. In the ancient world, a, a wife is a woman of a similar social class. A concubine is a woman of a lower social class. She's not quite a slave, but neither is she a wife. And here, Gideon's concubine, or Drubbaal's concubine, as verse 29 names him, uh, but he's established such power and influence in Israel that he goes so far as to name his concubine's son Abimelech, which means, my father is king. if Gideon is naming his son, my father is king, he's very much thinking of himself as a king. Uh, we'll hear more about Abimelech next time. But when Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Barit, God, uh, the Baal of the covenant, their God. Uh, Baal Barit seems to be sort of this a mingling mishmash of of the Lord and Baal. In fact, we have, we have evidence for this sort of thinking in the inscriptions of the ancient world, places where you see, we see a, 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 a picture of Yahweh. I mean, that's a great, yeah, pictures of Yahweh, that's a, yeah, no, plus, don't. But there's a picture of Yahweh with an Asherah next to him and, and the inscription says, Yahweh and his Asherah. These are the sorts of turning away from the Lord and the sort of idolatry that, that Judges refers to and we're told that the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God. Once again, they forget. Once again, they, and they don't show steadfast love to the family of Jeroboam, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. If you would show steadfast love, if you had if you show covenant loyalty to the family of Gideon, then you would not turn away from Gideon's God. Because no matter how much of a failure Gideon might be, the most important thing was that At the right time, Gideon put his trust in the Lord and did what God told him to do. And for those of us who fall short of what we should be, there is some comfort in that. But granted, a small comfort. It's it's only a very small comfort to hear that every generation has been like this. Some of you probably get a little frustrated when I make historical comments like that. There's never been a golden age. Every generation has been like this. I, I realize, Sometimes it's kind of frustrating. Like, really? Are we, are we always going to be such a mess? We want to believe that there is something better. Not just someday when Jesus returns. But this is where the story of Gideon points beyond itself. To the one who has already begun to make things better. Because what Jesus has done is nothing less. Than bring about a new creation. Not just Someday when he returns, but already, even in this age. This is what Jesus is beginning to do, that he has already begun to, to a, it's why Hebrews 11 says that these would not be perfect without us. They have been joined to Jesus as well. All of these stories of the heroes of the Old Testament become, come to their fruition in Jesus and in us. Because God has prepared something better for us that we, might, that we might live before the watching world as those who have been united to Jesus. Think about what we've been seeing in the book of Judges. Israel is fragmenting. Israel is, is sort of pulling apart. Though, in, in fairness, when was Israel ever united? Even go all the way back to the twelve sons of Jacob. How well did those brothers get along? <laughs> yeah, maybe for a little while in Egypt after the after the, at the at the end of the at the end of the, uh, the book of Genesis. Maybe maybe then they get along for a little while. Certainly by the time of Moses, they're not united. In the days of Moses and Joshua, Israel attracts a mixed multitude that joins themselves to Israel. Joshua's generation, as we saw when we went through the book of Joshua, was the only generation that ever really worked together as one people. The tribal groups that settled in the promised land were only slightly better connected with each other than they were connected to their distant cousins, the Midianites, who are oppressing them. And then just go forward from here. After the time of the judges... When did the people of Israel ever really co- coalesce into one people? Well, sort of in the days of King Saul, sort of in the days of David and Solomon, although, when you read carefully the stories in the book of Samuel and Kings, not really. Israel was never really one united nation. David and Solomon held them together in a very tenuous union. The book of Judges reflects on the fragmentation of the Old Testament church. The people of God are divided into little tribes, each of which is doing what is right in their own eyes. Sound familiar? The American church is very much like the Israelites in the days of the judges. Everyone doing what is right in our own eyes. We need a king who will lead us to do what is right in God's eyes. You see, Gideon was right... In what he saw as as the need of the day, first in what he said, the Lord will rule over you. Yes, that's that's what they need. But Gideon was also right in thinking that Israel needed a human king. He was only wrong in thinking that he himself or his son could be that king. We need Jesus. We need Jesus, the one who, who is God and man in one person, the one who unites God and man as one in order to unite us to God, that his life might be at work in us. And this is really where the book of Judges is pointing us. We need Jesus So let's pray and ask God to help us in this. Lord, help us because we are so fragmented. We are so much like our fathers. We very much do this whole, everyone doing what's right in their own eyes. Help us, Lord, to humble ourselves before you and before one another that we might not pursue our own selfish desires, but rather that we might pursue first the kingdom of Jesus. Help us to to not fall into Gideon's trap of thinking that we can make it work Help us to trust that Jesus is the one who has made it work, that he is the one who has promised and he is faithful. So help us, Lord, because we are weak and we are frail. And Lord, we thank you for your encouragement to us in Gideon, that that he showed us to trust you and to go forth, even against great odds, with confidence that you will accomplish the purpose for which you have for which you have have sent your spirit. You will accomplish what you have what you have said you'll do, and so Lord, grant us the grace, the wisdom, the strength to humble ourselves and to trust you and to do what you have commanded fearlessly. Father, have mercy, and because we are we are weak and frail, we, we are anxious about many things, and help us, Lord, to cast our cares upon you. Trust, trusting you in the midst of our challenges and difficulties, be with those, O oh Lord, who struggle with anxiety and, and depression, and 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 help them to to seek first your kingdom, trusting your promises. Have mercy, Lord, upon those who are who are ailing physically and in, whether of ailments of body or soul. Help us all, Lord, to to believe your promises and hold fast to Jesus, and. Help us to encourage one another as long as it's called today, that we might not be like the people of the time of the judges, everyone going our own separate ways, but may we may we listen well to each other and seek to encourage each other well, seek to know what your word says and how to put it into practice in daily life. Give us grace and favor in your eyes to to go to speak wisely and well to the, to the world around us, to those in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our communities, and in each place where you put us. Help us to, to bear witness faithfully to your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And grant, as, as we come now to this, your table, that you would strengthen and nourish us by your grace, that by your Holy Spirit you would renew us and refresh us as your people. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.